0: Now the main route was choked like the Albert Road when the Somme battle first began. Troops going up and troops coming down in the last stages of weariness, a ceaseless traffic of ambulances one way and ammunition wagons the other. Busy staff cars tried to worm away through the mass, strings of gun horses, oddments of cavalry and here and there blue French uniforms all that I'd seen before, but one thing was new to me. Little country carts, with sad-faced women and mystified children in them, and piles of household furnishings were creeping westward or stood waiting at village doors. Besides these tramped old men and boys, mostly in their Sunday best as if they were going to church. I'd never seen this before, for I'd never seen the British army falling back. The dam which held the waters had broken, and the dwellers in the valley were trying to save their pitiful little treasures. And over everything, horse and man, cart and wheelbarrow, road and tillage, lay the white March dust. The sky was blue as June, small birds were busy in the copse, and in corners of abandoned gardens I had a glimpse of the first violets presently. As we topped a rise, we came within noise of the guns. That, too, was new to me, for it was not an ordinary bombardment. There was a special quality in the sound, something ragged, straggling, intermittent, which I'd never heard before. It was the sign of open warfare and a moving battle.
1: Hello, welcome back. I'm Ursula Buchan, a granddaughter of John Buchan, who wrote the 39 Steps and much else besides. That vivid account of the scene on the eve of a great battle is given by Richard Hannay in what is surely John Buchan's greatest novel of the First World War, Mr. Standfast. My co-host, Michael Redley, who read that extract, is a professional historian interested in John Buchan, and generally in the history of Europe during and after the First World War.
0: Hello there. In this
1: podcast,
0: supported by the John Buchan Society, we began with The 39 Steps, his most celebrated and much filmed novel about the start of the war, and we moved on to Greenmantle, at the point when both sides were looking for breaks, for opportunities, strategic alternatives to the grim realities of trench warfare on the Western Front. And Mr. Stanfast is something different again, isn't it,
1: Ursula? Absolutely, because in contrast to those, Mr. Stanfast belongs to mid-1917 to mid-1918, when years of desperate fighting with huge losses on both sides caused profound fatigue and sorrow and raised the question whether alternatives existed which might possibly end the bloodshed. It's concerned with pacifism and with the more general belief that there must be a better way.
0: And I think it's fair to say that we have both been struck as historians by the documentary-like quality of parts of this novel.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And also the dilemmas in popular thinking about the war, which are rehearsed in the story. And they show just how close Buchan was to public opinion and to the events of the war. It's a thrilling adventure story in any case, which we can't recommend too highly. But Mr. Stanfast is also remarkable for its representation of important aspects of the First World War, which don't appear in any other account, fictional or factual.
1: And and that's really quite something when you think how much has been written about the war over the years. But to Mr. Stanfast itself, like its predecessors, Richard Haney is the hero of this novel. And at the start of it, He's a decorated senior officer in the British Army, fighting on the Western Front. He suffered minor wounds in many battles, but seems to be on an upward trajectory towards high command. He can still plausibly assume a disguise as a South African. In fact, he begins the adventure as Cornelius Brand, the Afrikaner he pretended to be in Greenmantle. But in this latest story, he takes a big step towards full assimilation into the British establishment. Early in the story visiting the Cotswolds, he describes how England had taken hold of him, and I'd just like to just read a little bit. Before, my country had been South Africa, and when I thought of home, it had been the wide, sun-steeped spaces of the belt or some scented glen of the Berg. But now I realised I had a new home. I understood what a precious thing this little England was, how old and kindly and comforting and wholly worth striving for. I think that's rather rather moving, actually.
0: It's a wonderful uh, moment in the story, yeah, when, when he sort of has a sudden realization of his predicament and the world around him in a new way. With Hannay, you're looking suddenly looking at, 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 at the world as he sees it through his new eyes. It's, it's brilliant. And before you get very far into the book, a couple of... A couple of interesting general things, I think, to say which will strike you about Mr. Stanfast. And the first of these is that it nests the story inside another book, the great Christian allegorical tale from the 17th century, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. And after the Bible, in Victorian times, this was the most widely owned and read religious text among ordinary people.
1: It's amazing, Mash, isn't it? Really, um, it's not yep. true nowadays.
0: Yeah, <laughs> in, in, indeed, and 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 John Bunyan, as a as a as a as a person of those times, knew long passages by heart. Mister Standfast, the, the title of the story is a character in Bunyan's book. Chapter headings in the book: the Wicked Gate, the Village named Morality, and the Valley of Humiliation are places, the names of places, on Christian's journey and the story. And at, at a different level, the book is used as a source of codes passed between Halle and his friends as they track the German genius who's at the bottom of all the Allies' military failures.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, but but the close association of Buchan's adventure story with Bill Pilgrim's Progress was plainly not introduced by him simply to emphasise good and evil in the Christian journey through life, was it?
0: No, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the, there has to be some deeper purpose in a way, or some 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 more more mundane, actually more mundane purpose, I suppose it is. And this is because I think of the way Peter Pinar in the story is handled. Can, can you just explain, yeah. take uh, yes, us through that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, Peter Pienaar, he's Hannay's close friend from South African days. He was quite a sort of even rougher down than the Richard Hannay. He writes often to Hannay of the solace he gets from Bunyan's text. He's entered personally into the narrative, and and the great characters like Mr. Stanfast and Great Heart and Valiant for Truth have simply become his friends. He's in the German prison camp, poor man, having been captured after losing the use of his legs, fighting as an airman on the Allied side, he was in the RFC. And the pathos that Hanni derives from Peter's letters is a constant encouragement to fortitude, that great virtue in, um, in Pilgrim's progress, fortitude in addressing the challenges that he faces in the book.
0: So it's not just about the good and evil theme, which, no. as we've said before, is very much uh, intrinsic to Buckham's writing uh, at all times and at all stages in his life. It's not just that. There is something else going on. And 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 we come back to that in just a moment. But, but realizing, I think, the point about a second puzzle about Mr. Standfast, intrinsic, uh, involved very much with the first, w- which is that it is in two parts. Yeah. The first set entirely in the British Isles up to the middle of 1917, with no clue that the rest of the story will be set entirely outside Britain in part two, with its resolution on the Western Front nine months later. And as I remember it in your biography of your grandfather, Ursula, you suggested, didn't you, that Buchan must, to begin with, have had a different ending in mind for the novel than the one it actually has.
1: Yes, absolutely. I really do think that. Because the ending is based on factual events that he could not possibly have foreseen when he began. And I, I really wish I knew what original ending his fertile imagination had conjured. The book took him 13 months off and on, which is a very long time for him, and so much happened both in his own life and in the war over that period. Let's not forget that the autumn of 1917 was the third Battle of Eat, the Passchendaele, a terrible time in the war. But why might a story devised originally in the middle of 1917 and reflecting the mood of that time appear to Buchan to be no longer appropriate in early 1918? That's the puzzle. (laughs)
0: Let's go back to the background to the book uh, as we try and work, work out what is going on here. To start with, among huge changes in Buchan's own life, at the time he began the novel, he was director of information, recalled from routine propaganda duties and reporting directly to the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, with a brief to reinvigorate Britain's propaganda, which was seen as having fallen badly behind the Germans' propaganda. On the agenda of his job then in in 1917 were some serious matters, relations between Britain's allies, notably the French. Well,
1: Uh, well, some of the army was in a mutinous state, wasn't it, the
0: French? Absolutely. It it was so, sort of falling apart and, and propaganda were, was very much intrinsic to try and keep, to keep it all together. Also, promoting contacts with the United States, which had declared war on Germany and her allies, of course, in April 1917. And finally, and crucially for the story behind the novel, keeping Russia in line against Germany, yeah, Czar, Tsarist Russia.
1: But I might add, on a sort of personal level, that almost immediately after he took up the role in February 17, he had to undergo a serious operation to bypass the duodenal ulcer that had so plagued him. He didn't convalesce properly. There was no time, and it wasn't a great success. His intestines continued to bother him all through the war years and beyond. In fact, 1917 was generally a very difficult time for him, since on the 9th of April, Both his beloved youngest brother, Alistair, and his great friend and business partner, Tommy Nelson, were killed on the first day of the Battle of Arras.
0: A terrible event in his life.
1: Appalling. uh, That day, yeah. The two men, both serving in Scottish regiments, died within half a mile of each other. Because of his workload, Buchan had no time to grieve properly for his brother and friend, and it took its toll on his physical health. He had to work hard not to fall into his own slough of despond, to, to, to quote from Pilgrim's Progress.
0: <laughs> and none of this was helped by things going badly wrong on Buchan's watch at the Department of Information, when the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas, who, as we saw last time, had had read his previous novel Green Mantle, abdicated in favour of a provisional Republican government in March 1917, with, then, the Bolshevik revolution following in October that year.
1: Yeah, no, indeed. Um, Pressure grew from this point within the government for Britain's propaganda effort, which had been described by critics as weak and aimed at opinion formers rather than the masses, to be placed in the hands of so-called professionals. The newspaper owners and editors lined up to offer themselves for the task. And it has to be said, Michael, doesn't it, to undermine Buchan?
0: Yeah, and and they and they they didn't pull their punches. They were gigantic egos, among the greatest yes. sort of egotists of their day, and and they and they were they were brutal in the way they they, they went about their business. Buchan was not a man who cherished grievances against. People. It
1: was also but, but not he, an
0: intriguer, was he? I mean, no, was. No, but but he had a particular animus against some of these people, and, mm-hmm. and he he couldn't conceal it really for the rest of his life. The attack on his management of the department included the suggestion that his policy towards Russia had been ineffective. And of course, the consequences of this were enormous because be enormous. because Lenin made peace with Germany and her allies finally uh, early in 1918. But it had already become apparent the way events were going before that, and the German forces, divided hitherto between eastern and western fronts, could now be concentrated in the west against Britain and France, a strategic possibility which had lain in the background for for, for a couple of years, and every effort had been made to try and prevent this happening, but now suddenly it was a reality.
1: I think we really have to say that Buchan could not possibly be blamed for the Russian Revolution. (laughs) If the Foreign Office had got it so wrong, how could the Information Department, which in practice answered to it, on its own have done anything else? And there were so many other factors in play three years into the war in Russia itself. I mean, it was nonsense. The newspaper men were deeply mischievous and self-seeking, Unfortunately, they did have the ear of David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, and Lloyd George and Buchan never liked each other. They were, frankly, chalk and cheese, weren't they? Yes. However, Buchan managed to remain in charge of the department until March 1918, when it was upgraded to a ministry with Max Aitken, Lord Beaverbrook, of course, as the minister.
0: And among the successes of the Department of Information, before we allow it to drift away into the past, for which later generations must be very grateful, I think, was the war artist scheme, employing astonishing talented people, artists, including Paul and John Nash and C.W.R. Neverson, uh, who documented faithfully what they saw on the battlefields and their, uh, their works are collected together, most of them in the Imperial War
1: Museum today. Yeah, they are really well worth going to see. They're remarkable paintings and they were supported by Buchan and, and the other members of the of, of the ministry. In Indeed. Unlike with Lloyd George, Buchan actually worked well with B. Brook and he remained at his side as the director of intelligence in the ministry when Germany's great attack, the so-called Ludendorff Offensive, began at the end of March 1918. The aim of this offensive was to drive straight through the front held by the British Army in front of Amiens in the direction of Paris and the English Channel.
0: So that was a, 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 a devastating moment in the, in the story because it, it showed the coming together of all these different historical events with Buchan sitting in the now in the ministry watching them happen, and all these changes in his personal position, and the altered strategic circumstances for which, as we say, he was held by some, however incredibly, to bear some responsibility, must have played a part in the change you get in part two of Mr. Standfast. A quiet, methodical examination of Britain's pacifist impulses in part one must now, sort of into 1918, have seemed an inadequate reflection of the dramatic events which had unfolded early that year, leading up to the Ludendorff offensive, and ending the story with the defeat, however narrowly, uh, as, as the novel um, portrays it, of Germany's last great offensive of the war, may well have given Buchan a certain satisfaction in view of the charges which had been laid at his door at the end of the previous year.
1: I should think it jolly well did. <laughs> but, but Michael, I do think that there are a couple of other elements of the historical background to Mr. Stanfast which helped to explain key aspects of it. First, Bucken undoubtedly intended the story to challenge the war weariness, the pacifism, and also the labour unrest which were developing in some parts of British society in 1917. Death. Very much so, yes. Yeah. And from July that year, an all-party parliamentary committee was given responsibility for home propaganda, there hadn't been anything for home propaganda before then, ensuring that it would be under neutral political control. But by then, Bucken had already begun the novel, and he continued it, perhaps believing that it was a contribution to the work of that committee on which he was a non-executive member. That seems pretty plausible to me, I must say.
0: Yes, yes, it's certainly plausible. And we're now getting back to, to, to the, the puzzles of earlier. We, we, we've dealt with one of them, the, the, the question of how the novel was constructed. Now to the second one, this nesting of the, the novel inside The Pilgrim's Progress. What, what may Bucken have intended by weaving his own story so firmly into The, into the Pilgrim's Progress? In Mr. Standfast, Hannay confesses to Peter Pinar his liking of shortcuts. And his impatience with slow but steady ways. And in response, Peter reads him a famous passage from The Pilgrim's Progress, spoken by Mr. Greatheart in the Valley of Humiliation. And let me just quote that passage because I think it's absolutely central to this point, really. This is what he said Some have wished that the next way to their father's house were here and that they might be troubled no more with either hills or mountains to go over. But the way is the way, and
1: there is an end. The way is the way. Now, I know, Michael, you, you think that the nonconformist sensibility of which the Pilgrim's progress was so family apart reached all across social classes and national divides in Britain, didn't it? Very much so, yes, it did, yeah. He, he certainly believed. I can certainly believe that there was no way around Bunyan's conclusion. The way is the way, and it was sunk deep into Britain's nonconformist consciousness, and coupled with this idea of fortitude to see the fight through to the end. This, I believe, is the propaganda message sustained throughout Mr. Stanfast, which actually sort of glues it together, as it were. But that said, Michael. We know that ideas on propaganda evolved in that all important time, don't we? While he was running the Department of Information, and that being the case, did they shape the book, particularly the second half? It's a really
0: fascinating thought, and 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 I believe I believe so. If I just ex- explain it this way, the transporting of Lenin and the Bolshevik vanguard from Switzerland to Russia under the protection of the German High Command which happened in the middle of 1917, coupled with the very fine margin of the war as each side grappled for advantage in a situation of increasing military exhaustion, meant that what propaganda might achieve began to be viewed on all sides, on both sides, in a new light early in 1918. And this perception, I think, finds its way repeatedly into Mr. Standfast as the band of brothers led by Bullivant and Hannay recognized that the evil genius at the center of the conspiracy is not simply gathering information, the act of a spy, but having detailed knowledge of how the enemy's public opinion is formed is working to shape it. And, and this is surely the distinction that Buchan made in the story between the so called cage birds and wild birds which is such yeah. an important part of the story.
1: Yes, yes, but you'll have to read it to find out. The, this evil genius, the leader of the Wild Birds, is, is, is a man called Graf von Schwabing. He's a Prussian. As Sir Walter Bullermann understands, and I quote exactly what Bullermann says, make the next German peace offensive really deadly, not the blundering thing which it has been up to now, but something which gets our weak spots on the raw There were, as we know, plenty of calls by influential people for peace negotiations in those years, weren't there?
0: Yes, there were. Among the most influential in the land, I think it's fair to say, were publishing statements where there was discussion in various places about the possibility of peace negotiations in place of continuation of the war. Uh, And bold claims are made in the novel for the efficacy of the propaganda weapon. And, and and that's quite a startling thing, really. But the background to it is really to do with the place propaganda ha- had in thinking in the last year of the war, in an official paper which may possibly actually have been drafted for Lord Beaverbrook by John Buchan. Beaverbrook called propaganda "munitions of the mind," a wonderful phrase. But the fact is that as Mister Stanfast was completed. In the middle of 1918, no one responsible for the conduct of the war any more doubted propaganda's vital importance to the outcome. Take a break from your detective work, Bucken fans,
1: because we've got something exciting to share with you. John Bucken was an important figure in the first half of the 20th century a well-connected politician and statesman, an admired historian, as well as an incredibly successful novelist. If this podcast
0: makes you want to know more, the John Buchan Society, which supports John Buchan Unbound, is inviting you to join the great adventure.
1: The Society has been pioneering the study of John Buchan for more than 40 years, hosting friendly and lively meetings and seminars, and producing a journal reporting research into the many different aspects of this diverse, amazing man.
0: And if you happen to find yourself dramatically hanging out of a train and passing Peebles in Scotland, check out the John Buchan Story Museum, where you can find everything you would want to learn about the man
1: and his books. So, to hear more about the Society and join in the adventure, visit www.johnbuchansociety.co.uk and become part of Buchan's story yourself.
0: Now, let's get back to
1: the action. Welcome back. Having looked at the circumstances behind it, what are the story itself? Richard Hannay, the narrator, describes what is to come with a reference to his native South Africa. Up on the high veld, our rivers are apt to be strings of pools linked by muddy trickles, the most stagnant kind of watercourse you would look for in a day's journey. But presently, they reach the edge of the plateau and are tossed down into the flats in noble ravines, and roll thereafter in full and sounding currents to the sea. So with the story I am telling, it began in smooth reaches, as idle as a millpond. Yet the day soon came, when I was in the grip of a torrent, flung breathless from rock to rock, by a destiny which I could not control.
0: That's a a wonderful, very very apt description of the novel. It it comes right at the beginning, and and one wonders at what point he inserted it, given our earlier consideration of of how the book was written. Yeah, right. Mister Stanfast is, isn't it, a, an episodic tale? I think you say this in your biography. Yes, with with with, with much delightful description of chance encounters in faraway places and. Journeying by many means of travel, rowing boats, bicycles, tramp steamers, and trains, and you've guessed it, stolen motor cars.
1: Always got to be a stolen motor car. <laughs> Usually a very expensive stolen motor car. <laughs> which, which crashes at some point. At some point, yes. There are vivid accounts of exploits in mountains, both in the island of Skye and the Italian Alps, which Buchan always did extremely well. Not surprisingly, really, since he'd been a brave and accomplished mountaineer in his youth. The story begins, as Hammy says, gently and discursively, but it reaches a breathless, crashing conclusion.
0: But we mustn't spoil it. (laughs) Certainly not. This is a wonderful story. It's rooted in a warm and generous view of human nature, although actually that doesn't stop satisfactory retribution being meted out to the arch-villain. Very uh,
1: satisfactory.
0: Again, no no <laughs> spoiler, no, no no spoiler intended. To give you just a flavour without giving too much away, let's just describe the start, shall we? With Richard Hannay in disguise as Cornelius Brand on a train on his way to a house party in the Cotswolds.
1: Disapproving fellow passengers want to know why he's not in uniform. But his mission, deeply uncongenial for a highly decorated soldier pulled back at short notice from his command in France, is to pose as a pacifist, sinking himself into the disenchanted mood in public opinion, believing that the time has come for peace. He must listen to criticisms of the high command of the army, of which he is a proud member, and he has to agree with them. He is at the Wicket Gate, the beginning of Christian's journey, in his own pilgrim's progress, meeting people along the way who challenge him and try to divert him from his path. He needs all the fortitude he can muster.
0: But, of course, he also encounters friends and comrades to help him at various times, two of whom, Peter Pienaar and John S. Blenkiron, have already featured in Green Mantle, and one Mary Lamington, with whom he falls in love, who will also play a part in the next Halle novel, The Three Hostages.
1: But he's not alone at first, isn't he? And his first stop is Biggleswick, which is a fictional new town in the English Midlands, loosely based on Letchworth Garden City, which we know he had visited during the war. Its inhabitants are literary figures, the odd liberal politician, and civil servants with exemption from military service. An inhabitant describes it rather pompously as one great laboratory of thought and its dwellers, interested in all forms of novelty, talk, quote, ruthlessly of culture.
0: And and Hannay lodges with a pacifist couple who lead a sober life of utter respectability and civic responsibility. And by sinking into the local scene, Hannay seeks to establish himself as an aspirant to a higher life, though privately at odds with the entire outlook of Biggleswick's inhabitants. And what he says what he says about them in passing is is this. If you talk to them about divine countryside, you found they didn't give a rap for it and had never been a mile beyond the village, but they admired greatly the sombre effect of a train going into Maryland Station on a rainy day. It's <laughs> lovely. <laughs> and they meet in what is called pretentiously, don't they, the moot hall to have their minds broadened as Hannay puts it, to cracking point. Although for them, the war is a remote and secondary affair. It's a fascinating sort of comic take on a, an immensely serious subject of the time. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's a really fascinating kind of dissonance, in a way, between the comic, the comedy of what is being described, but also the seriousness against which it's all set.
1: That's right. And Hannay is not amused... In fact, he secretly fumes about it, and he's got nobody to talk to. And the informal leader of this community is an academic called Moxon Ivory, who often chairs meetings in the Moot Hall and quietly stokes the pacifism of Biggleswick. He's the incarnation of the moderate, comfortable, middle-class sentimentalist who appears utterly nondescript. Hanney finds all the people actually of Biggleswick infected with what he calls spiritual pride. But he can't bring himself either to dislike them or to see them as any way very dangerous.
0: And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because his whole background is, is to regard these people as subversive and, and so on. But, he, but that's not the way he goes. He actually, in a way, finds them rather intriguing, rather sympathetic you know, on a personal level. Mm. But then we, we discover that he's looking at the whole thing from the wrong angle. And this is a wonderful moment in the story. Enlightenment comes from Blenkiron, who arrives as an invited speaker. Remember, Blenkiron is is on the same side, as it were. Uh, Blenkiron and Hannay are working uh, against the conspiracy and trying to unmask it. But they're both guests together at Ivory's dinner table, and both of them sitting side by side are impersonating pacifist sympathizers. And Blenkiron, who's been secretly a observing Ivory for months, reveals that he is the leader of the German spy ring in Britain.
1: Uh, (laughs) Ah, but but actually, even Blen has got Ivory wrong. It turns out that Hannay has come across him before, although he doesn't immediately realise it. But diligent followers of John Buck and have also come across this person, but I'm afraid they'll have to read the book to find out who he actually is.
0: But we, we should say, Buckham was vocal and active in getting conscientious objectors released from prison at the end of the war. And one of the finest characters in the story uh, is a man called Lancelot Wake, who is a conscientious objector. Yes, it's one of the best characterizations in the whole book, I think. Uh It's enormously carefully done. And and Buchan comes back to it again and again and pastes on different elements of the character as he goes. And, and it, it was clearly a very important part of the whole process of writing the novel to get the yeah. character of Lancelot Wake well-developed,
1: I think. And he's so sympathetic, really, isn't he? And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sad story. Anyway, yeah. uh, for historians like us, there's plenty of vivid social detail as well, with more than a ring of truth about it in Mr. Sandfast. For example, just give one example, there's a description of the public's response to a daytime air raid on London, which was based on an experience that Susan Buck and John's wife actually endured. And there's also a humorous scene close to the reality of a wartime propagandist life, where a mock battle is filmed using real troops on a constructed set in the English countryside. (laughs)
0: And, and, and I can't resist mentioning one particular favorite of mine, which is Hannay's account of his journey towards the great battle, which ends the story. And we quoted quote from this right at the start. They're traveling across France in a swirl of rumor, and, gradu- and gradually Hannay realizes by piecing together information from the people he meets just how bad the military situation already is. And this is kind of masterly storytelling, moving the story vividly and effectively towards its climax. It's a magnificent, I think, moment in, in the story, but also a, a wonderful exhibition of, really a, of narrative
1: technique. And it gets even more exciting after that. I really hope we've said enough to whet your appetite to read Mr. Standfast. But not too much,
0: I hope. <laughs> this is it, It's in some way a strange book, uh, and we've tried to explain why. It, it bears strong traces of its origins in the propaganda thinking of wartime. It, it appeared finally, though, early in 1919, actually after the war had ended, so that there's a real oddity about that. The manuscript, which survives, was a gift from Buchan to his surviving brother, Walter, And perhaps, we we, we don't know, but it's a possibility that he discussed with his wider family what on earth to do with it, something he'd written in one set of circumstances, but which could only now be published in a very different world. And and his family were always and often his sounding board on matters like this. Anyway, as a consequence, perhaps, of that conversation, um, he decided that he would publish it after all.
1: And I'm I'm so glad he did. He did su- subsequently elaborate in his non-fiction on many of its details, including the desperate battle to defend Amiens in March 1918, and also his admiration for the commander of the British Army, who he knew quite well, Sir Douglas Haig. He, he makes a, the, couple, a yes, couple
0: of ca- ca- cameo appearances, I think, doesn't he, in in, in Mr. Stanfast.
1: Yes, he's never actually named, is he? But I think everybody no. at the time knew exactly who, who Buckingham yes. meant. Yeah. And, and and perhaps above all his celebration of what he called the faithfulness of the many, which emerged strongly in his post-war writings, memorializing the war, as the bedrock of Britain's ultimate victory. We'll be looking at this in more detail in the next episode when we look at his post-war honey novel, The Three Hostages.
0: Mr. Stanfast, then, just to conclude, is a great story. It's a marvellous thriller. But I hope we've also shown that it is an interesting reflection on aspects of the First World War, which are are not often mentioned in conventional histories.
1: Yeah, particularly the strong pacifist impulse in public opinion and the rapidly developing role of propaganda in the final months of the war. Buchan was closer to these aspects of the conflict as a result of his official responsibilities than almost anyone else.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and I do think that their reflection in his writing, describing in fiction what could not be recorded in the formal histories, I, I just think it deserves more attention than it's hitherto received.
1: I hope we've convinced everyone of that. In our next episode, we shall look at Buckingham's fourth novel in the Richard Hanney series, The Three Hostages. Although set in the early 1920s, this story reflects a world still struggling to come to terms... With the legacies of the First World War.
0: Absolutely. But we hope you've enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.